How did Jeff Bezos realize you could sell anything on the internet? Why did Bill Gates create Control-Alt-Delete? How did Synchronized Swimming prepare Christine Lagarde for international politics? What made Bob Iger bet big on Marvel? And what inspired Diane von Furstenberg to create the wrap dress? On The David Rubenstein Show, peer-to-peer conversations, I uncover the untold stories of the world's most successful leaders. Listen now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to For the Ages, a history podcast presented by the New York Historical Society and hosted by David Rubenstein. Join us as he deftly explores the rich and complex history of the United States with some of the nation's foremost historians and creative thinkers, because history matters. Hello, I'm David Rubenstein, and I'm pleased to be joining conversation today with Edna Green Medford, a professor of history at Howard University and the author of Lincoln and Emancipation. Edna, thank you for joining me. It's my pleasure. So let's talk about Lincoln's basic views on slavery. When Lincoln was growing up, did he say slavery is terrible and I want to outlaw it, or did he basically accept slavery as as part of the nature of the country? Well, well, certainly he he was a part of the 19th century uh, American population, uh, and most white people accepted the institution. Lincoln accepted its existence, but did not believe that it should be a part of American society. But he was not an abolitionist, not before the Civil War. He was an anti-slavery person. So what that meant, at least for him, was that slavery should be contained. He believed the founders had put slavery on the road to extinction. And so if you contain it where it already was, it would eventually die a natural death. Now, am I correct in saying that Lincoln believed strongly in the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution and the founding fathers? And his view was, they put slavery in the Constitution, so it's not my job to take it out. Is that a fair summary? It's it's not so much that as he understood that at the founding of the nation, when the Constitution was drafted, if slavery had been outlawed at that time, there would have been no United States of America. Uh, certainly not under the Constitution as we know it, because it was so important to the Southern economy and Southern society in general. And of course, the founders recognized how important it was to the South as well and understood that if they really pressed for the ending of slavery at that point in time, the Southern delegation would never have approved the Constitution. It was a compromise. It is said that Lincoln got some of his anti-slavery views from his father, who was very anti-slavery. And in fact, it is often thought that his father moved from Kentucky to Indiana and later Illinois because those states were not states that really supported slavery. Is that a fair summary or not? It's my understanding that he moved the family to Indiana because the land titles were were more likely to hold up there than in the state of Kentucky. And, and also, he understood that wherever slavery was in a, a significant uh, way, he would be restrained from really developing himself. He would not have the opportunities he felt that uh, the planters certainly had with their enslaved laborers. So it was about opportunity for white men, not about fairness to black people, but opportunity for white men who did not have the advantages of having enslaved laborers to work for them. 
So in the 1850s, Lincoln is elected as a Whig member of the House of Representatives, serves just one term. But in that term, he introduces legislation to outlaw slavery in the District of Columbia. Is that right? He did. In 1848-49, he is drafting uh, a law that would outlaw slavery in the district because it was such a hypocrisy to talk about freedom in America and have people being auctioned off for life right there in the shadow of the nation's capital, you know, of, of the uh, the building itself. And so he did do that. He he thought he had support from certain segments of his uh, party, but when it was time to present it, uh, it seemed all of that support just disappeared. And so he never actually brought it to the, the Congress. So he was a supporter, as I understand it, of something called colonization. What was colonization and why was it so attractive to him? To use Lincoln's words, it was voluntary deportation of Black people because Lincoln believed that the two races were so different that they could not possibly coexist in this one nation. And so he felt that Black people should be willing to pack up and go someplace else so that white men would be able to live in peace. Now we look at that in the 21st century and we think how awful, but that is really how people thought during those days, how some people did. The Colonization Society had been around since 1816 and Lincoln's favorite politician was someone who had helped to found that organization. And so Lincoln believed that that was a solution to the race problem. Now, when Lincoln is elected president in 1860, uh, the South begins to secede. Is that because they believe in the South that he is going to abolish slavery or, or what was their reasoning? And he never said at any point in his campaign he was going to abolish slavery. So what was their fear? Right. And he said just the opposite. Lincoln was very much a moderate. Uh, he was not a radical politician, certainly not a radical Republican. He was a moderate Republican. He was an anti-slavery person, not, you know, against the expansion of slavery, but certainly not an abolitionist. But Southerners thought you've got this man who is a Republican and the Republican Party does have people in it who are very radical during this period. And so they think, you know, if we don't do something about this now, this man's going to come in and he's going to take our enslaved laborers from us. And maybe they had a point there. I mean, certainly the Republican Party, uh, some historians have argued that the Republican Party was definitely bent on getting rid of slavery. But that's that was just one part of the Republican Party. There were conservative Republicans and very moderate Republicans as well. Lincoln would not have touched the institution if those states had not seceded from the Union. It is really interesting that Black freedom comes as a consequence of Southern slaveholders and their supporters deciding that they're going to leave the Union, which then presses the issue of slavery and freedom occurs as a consequence of that. Well, in fact, in the inaugural address, which Lincoln wrote himself, in his first inaugural, he says he supports the idea of slavery being uh, reaffirmed as part of the Constitution and supports what was then considered to be the 13th Amendment, which said that slavery was part of the Constitution and was not to be outlawed. Isn't that unusual for somebody who's later known as the great liberator to be supporting slavery in that way? 
Well, what Lincoln believed was that slavery, where it already existed, could not be touched because enslaved people were property. And you don't do anything with people's property without their permission. The Constitution did protect property and property and enslaved people as well. And Lincoln was a stickler for the Constitution. So he was not going to do anything that would go against that. Now, the 13th Amendment that you are mentioning, that original 13th Amendment that comes out of the Corwin Agreement, was about ensuring that slavery would be able to exist in perpetuity in the southern states and that no one could later on ratify any kind of amendment that would abridge those rights. Lincoln was willing to sign on to that because he was trying to make sure that the nation would not be divided. And of course it was. That constitutional amendment was suggested after South Carolina had uh, seceded, and then the other states were beginning to as well, Mississippi and so on. So Lincoln was not an abolitionist. And to make sure that people who are listening understand what an abolitionist was, what did an abolitionist believe in 1860 or 61? At the beginning of the Civil War, an abolitionist was someone who believed that slavery was morally wrong and it didn't make sense economically over the long run either, and that it retarded development in the South. And so they believed that slavery needed to end. And in many instances, most people said immediately. Lincoln was very much a gradualist. He believed that slavery should end, but he was willing to wait for it to uh, end gradually over an extended period of time, even up to 1900. Now, there is a very well-known newspaper editor, publisher, Horace Greeley, who then wrote, uh, I guess, an editorial saying that Lincoln should free the slaves, or wrote a letter, I guess, to Lincoln, uh, saying that, a public letter, that the slaves should be freed. And Lincoln writes back, um, that's not his mission. His mission is to save the Union. Is that right? He does say that, but he says a little bit more than that. He says that whatever he does about slavery, he would do to save the Union. And so if it meant freeing all the enslaved laborers, he would do it. If it meant freeing some and leaving others enslaved, he would do that. And if it meant not touching slavery at all, he would do that because his aim was to secure the union, not to end slavery. At least this was his position until January 1st, 1863. So in 1862, in the summer of 1862, Lincoln apparently drafts up an emancipation proclamation as we now know it. And it was his idea, which he hadn't told anybody, that maybe he would free the slaves. Did he actually write it himself? Uh, did somebody suggest he do this? And when did he have time to write an Emancipation Proclamation? And who did he first tell he was thinking about doing this? It's fascinating, isn't it, in the middle of the war that he can take care of all of these things at once, but he had no choice. He understood that the war was not going well for the Union, and he had to do something extraordinary. And he understood fairly early on in the war that slavery, as long as slavery remained intact, it was going to be a problem for Americans down the road. And so he initially attempted to get the states to emancipate. He firmly believed that the states needed to do it, but he kept requesting that they do it. He gave them all kinds of incentives. They would never do it. And he finally decided he would have to do it himself. And he wrote the proclamation, he wrote the draft while he was at the soldier's home. 
It's where he and his family stayed during the summer months. And so he had the opportunity to write it then. It, it, it was a very serene place then, and it still is. And so it gave him opportunity to think about exactly what he could do to preserve the union. And he came to the conclusion that he would have to do something about the slaves who were still under Confederate control, because those folk were giving a lot of aid and comfort to the enemy, not willingly, but as laborers, as military laborers, people who are throwing up breastworks, men who are serving as orderlies and teamsters, and they're still growing the food crops and the cash crops as well on the plantations. So Lincoln understood that if you separate the Confederacy, if you separate those who are rebelling, the secessionists, from their enslaved laborers, that's a way to win the war. Because you can also bring those men that you have just freed into the military. So Lincoln shows this to his cabinet. And to remind people, the cabinet wasn't 20 people in those days. I think there's like four or five cabinet officers. That's all there is. So he shows it to them. What do they say to him after they read it? There's a disagreement about what he should do. There are some of them who are concerned that it's going to turn the border states. These are slaveholding states that remained in the Union. Uh, Montgomery Blair, for instance, is fearful that those states are going to turn against the Union. Uh, there are others that think that it's just too radical an idea and that he's going to lose the support of Northerners. Uh, there is Seward who believes that he should wait a while until there's some kind of victory on the battlefield because the Union's just not doing very well during that period. And so, you know, what Seward says is we don't want it to look like we're holding our hand out to Ethiopia to help us win this war. In other words, we don't want Northerners to believe that we have to rely on Black people to win the war. But that's exactly what they had to do. So Lincoln ultimately accepts that advice, and he waits till there's some military victory, so it doesn't look like he's doing this from a position of weakness. Is that right? Yes. And, and you know, it, it's the, the battle at Antietam, you know, the, the bloodiest single day uh, of the war. It's a draw. It's not a real definitive victory, but it's good enough. It's enough for Lincoln to have the opportunity to issue this preliminary proclamation. So in September of 1862, he issues a preliminary emancipation proclamation, and he says, I'm going to issue the permanent one beginning of next year. Why did he wait till next year to issue the permanent one? Why not just issue it right then? He's giving the Confederacy 100 days to think about it, because even then, Lincoln would prefer to end the war by not dealing with that issue of slavery. He understands that there are lots of folk who are going to be in disagreement with this. And so he's giving the Confederacy one last chance to come back into the Union. Now, you know, the argument has been that no one was really expecting the Confederates to come back at that point. They were just doing too well. And so there was that fear on the part of people who really wanted the proclamation to be issued. The fear was that the war would turn around and the Union would start winning battles. And if that happened, Lincoln would have no reason to issue the final proclamation. So people were actually praying that things weren't too good on the battlefield so that Lincoln would be forced to issue that proclamation. 
So he decides to issue it on January 1, 1863. There's a tradition then that the president of the United States meets with people in the White House. They can just come by and shake his hand. And it is said that he shook 2,500 hands or something like that that day. And then he goes upstairs to sign the, the proclamation. But his hand is not in such good shape. So he has to wait a while because he says, what, he doesn't want people to think his hand is uh, reflecting an uncertainty about uh, signing this? He wants to make sure that people have no concerns about whether or not he is totally behind what he's doing. And so he says, you know, my whole heart is in this. You know, it, it, it wouldn't be surprising to me if he was shaking, not just because his hand was tired, but because what he was doing was so extraordinary. He understood the implications of this. So he's a human being. Why wouldn't he be a little bit concerned about how this was going to all pan out? Now, the emancipation was called by one famous presidential scholar saying that it had all the, uh, I guess, grace of a bill of lading. It really wasn't uh, very eloquent. Can you explain why a Lincoln who could write 272 words of great eloquence in the Gettysburg Address can't say in one sentence even in the Emancipation Proclamation why he's doing this and why this is important to the history of the country. Well, he does say several times, well, at least three times that he's doing this out of military necessity. And that was deliberate. He understood that he might not have the legal grounds to stand on to do this, except under military necessity. He believed that because he was commander in chief, and he had the ability to do whatever was necessary to quell the rebellion. And so he felt that meant that he could do something about slavery as well. It took him a while to come to that conclusion, but he finally did. If he had talked about the moral implications of this, it would not have gone over well with many Americans. Americans would be able to understand military necessity. But to say we're doing this because it's a moral issue, a lot of Americans would not have gone along with that. It is also said by some, and I don't know if this is your view as well, that he was afraid if he gave a reasoning for doing this, uh, that the Chief Justice of the United States and maybe the entire Supreme Court would have more grounds to say, you don't have the uh, grounds to do this, your reasoning is faulty. And because Justice Taney was still the Chief Justice, do you subscribe to that view as well? Oh, absolutely. He knew that there would be legal challenges. And in fact, that's why the 13th Amendment is eventually uh, passed in Congress and ratified by the states. Because people, including Lincoln, they were all very concerned about whether or not the proclamation would stand up in court because it was a military measure. And so once the war is over, what's going to stop this presidential decree, this executive order from being challenged? something else had to be done. Using his military powers, which he presumes he has as commander in chief, he says, I'm going to free the slaves that are under the control of those who are in effect fighting us. But that means that the slaves in the border states, there were four border states, they were not freed. Doesn't that seem strange to some people that slaves in Maryland or Tennessee are not being freed? Well, if it's through military necessity, he can't touch slavery in those states. He can only deal with slavery where it existed in those states or parts thereof in rebellion. And so because the four border states were not in rebellion, Lincoln could only encourage them to do something on their own as states. 
One of the other criticisms that some people have made of the Emancipation Proclamation is that it actually didn't free many slaves because slave owners weren't exactly telling their slaves, guess what, you're now free because Lincoln said so. So slave owners weren't actually freeing the slaves, were they? And, and how many slaves were actually freed by the Emancipation Proclamation? Well, there were about 3.1 million who were actually included in the proclamation. There were over 800,000 that were not. Uh, and those were in areas that were already under union control in the, the border states, those four border states. But there were some that did get their freedom immediately. Uh, historians are arguing now that uh, possibly 50,000 were immediately freed. So you're talking about enslaved people, for instance, or formerly enslaved people uh, in the Sea Islands of Georgia, in places like Port Royal, where their owners had retreated, you know, had run away when the Union military arrived, leaving those enslaved people behind. And when the Union arrived, they don't get their freedom really officially until the Emancipation Proclamation. But in, for all intents and purposes, they are free people. Uh, they, they certainly have more freedom than anybody else who, who is um, enslaved or who's in the Confederacy. If you're a slave owner in, let's say, the Deep South and your slaves are working for you, were those slave owners saying to those slaves, you're free? Or they were just saying, you know, I don't care what Lincoln says, you're still my slave. It depended upon the slaveholder. So if you were a union supporter, you might go down to the slave quarters and let them know that the president has declared freedom for them. But of course, many of the Confederates just paid no attention. And it wasn't just after the uh, the proclamation had been issued, but they didn't consider it even after the war was over. In many instances, they're being freed because African-Americans are taking the initiative and running away to the Union lines. And secondly, you've got the Union Army and Navy coming in to liberate people. And you have African-American soldiers and sailors who are a part of that liberation force. Now, in Texas, slaves weren't told about this uh, right away, I guess. And so we celebrate Juneteenth which is the time that slaves in Texas were informed that they were free. Is that right? I wouldn't say that they didn't know. It just wasn't enforceable until okay. uh, Granger sailed into port. Uh, Texas was a big place. There was not a, a large military presence there. And so people may not have known in the hinterland, so to speak, but people knew. It's just that it couldn't be enforced. So they're, they're not so much the last people to know about the proclamation as it is that they are among the last where the, the troops are coming in to enforce the, the freedom of people. How many slaves actually began to fight for the Union? Um, how many actually were in the military for the Union? And were they in integrated units or were they segregated units? Uh, there were upwards of 200,000 Black men who served on the Union side. And yes, they were segregated. They were in Black units that were commanded by white officers. And they were not treated as if they were regular soldiers. In many instances, they were treated as if they were enslaved people who were just working for the Union. 
And were they paid the same wages as white soldiers? They had been promised that they would be paid the same, but they were not. They were paid uh, $10 with $3 taken away for clothing. That was the argument, while uh, white soldiers were paid $13. And there was no deduction for clothing. And Frederick Douglass at one point goes to the White House to complain about the fact that treatment is not being equal. Does he get any relief from the president? Well, initially, what Lincoln says to him is, you know, he sympathizes, but he says, you know, it was hard enough just to get the North to agree that we should use Black men in the Army. And so the equal pay issue will be resolved eventually. But right now, it would be better not to press that. Now, that's difficult for Black men who are in the Army and have families to support. These are not just enslaved people who have run away, although they have family to support as well, but there are also many free Black men in the North who have no other way to support their families, and they're getting $7 a month. And if you were a freed Black man and you were fighting for the Union and you were killed, could you be buried alongside a white soldier? Generally, that was not the case. They would have had, in many instances, Black cemeteries, but there were instances in which Black men were buried with their officers. In the case of uh, Colonel Shaw, for instance, 54th Massachusetts fame, uh, he died with his soldiers and the Confederates decided to shame the Union and shame his family by burying him with his Black soldiers. And after the war, the family said, no, leave him where he is. He died with the men that he had come to appreciate. He had come to respect. Initially, he had not, but he had come to respect those men before he was killed with them. In the end, um, is it generally the view of historians that the Black soldiers in the Union forces made a, a real difference in enabling the Union to win the war? Certainly, Lincoln thought so, and some of the generals thought so as well. In the first year after the proclamation, because the proclamation does give authorization for Black men to serve, uh, Black men had already been serving before the proclamation, but this authorizes them to be enlisted. And by the end of that year, by the end of 63, generals are writing to Lincoln saying there is a real difference here. They're making a difference. They are involved in some very significant battles. Uh, Lincoln didn't believe that they would, would serve honorably. He thought that they would be cowardly because some of them would be facing their former owners on the battlefield, but they equipped themselves very well. And so they won over Lincoln as well. There was a view at the time in some circles, I think, if, tell me if I'm right, that Blacks were not capable of being good soldiers. They didn't know how to shoot. They had never really had guns before. They weren't as courageous, all of the kind of things you might suspect. Uh, was that a prevalent view in, in the North as well as the South? Absolutely, it was. And with Lincoln as well, because Black men had been trying to get into the war from the very beginning. And so Lincoln had said uh, to someone, if you arm them, our arms will be in the hands of the rebels within a week because they will not stand and fight. So the belief really was that Black men could not measure up, and they did just the opposite. They served very honorably. So when the war was over, why did we need a 13th Amendment? We had had the Emancipation Proclamation. 
slaves were freed in certain states. Why did Lincoln say we need a 13th Amendment? Well, there were still enslaved people uh, who were not covered by the Emancipation Proclamation. Many of them had gotten their freedom along the way because the states started. Uh, Missouri, for instance, and uh, Maryland had gone on and issued its, its own proclamations, its own laws ending slavery uh, after uh, the proclamation. But Delaware had not done that. And Kentucky had not either. So that's one reason. But they understood that the proclamation probably would not stand the test of time, that it would be challenged and it might be overturned. And besides that, there's no reason why the Southern states could not reintroduce slavery. With the proclamation, it simply said, those folk who are enslaved now are free. But there was no reason why the South couldn't somewhere down the road issue a new order enslaving all Black people. And so the 13th Amendment was absolutely necessary to ensure that slavery was ended forever in the United States. Subsequent to Lincoln's assassination, we have the 14th and the 15th Amendments. The 14th declares that freed slaves are citizens, and the 15th gives them the right to vote. Was Lincoln in favor of the 14th and 15th Amendment before he was assassinated? Well, well, Lincoln, of course, had, had already been assassinated by the time those two amendments are introduced in Congress. Uh, he certainly would have supported the 14th Amendment. It, it is about citizenship. It's about due process. It's about protecting the rights of individuals. Lincoln certainly was someone who would have been in favor of that. The 15th Amendment was you know, ensuring that Black men had the right to vote. And we know that in his last public address uh, in April of 1865, before Booth assassinated him, Lincoln was talking about the possibility of voting rights for certain groups of Black men, for the veterans who had equipped themselves so well in the war, and for those, he said, who were uh, the more intelligent, which always uh, gets to me because there are many, many white men who are not well-educated. When he says the more intelligent, he's really talking about the educated. And there were many other Americans who were not well-educated and no one was saying that they should not have the right to vote. But at least he was moving in the right direction. So the Emancipation Proclamation signed on January 1, 1863. Where is that document now? Uh, it's in the National Archives. Uh, it, it had been, I believe, in the State Department for a number of years, but I think in the 1930s, if I'm not mistaken, it was moved to uh, the National Archives. And it's taken out from time to time for viewing, but it's usually kept away because, you know, it's fading. And so they're just they're trying to protect it. There were many commemorative proclamations, too, that he had signed, I think 40 or more. And so those are in various places. That's correct. I think uh, he signed us, I think, 47 souvenir copies to give the money to the uh, an equivalent of the Red Cross. Mm -hmm. uh, they were to be sold for $10 a piece, but they only could sell six of them. <laughs> and so um, they weren't the big sellers at the time. Now there are 20 some left. Um, I actually own two of them, and I've put oh. them on a long-term display at the African-American History and Culture Museum as part of the Smithsonian. And Thank the you. other one I, I, I send around the country to various places to have it be viewed. But Lincoln, interestingly, 
when Lincoln signed his name, he always signed A. Lincoln. But if it was important, really important, he would sign Abraham Lincoln. And on the Emancipation Proclamation, he signed Abraham Lincoln. So he obviously realized the significance of it. Oh, he certainly did. You know, it's even though it it may have sounded like a bill of laden, he understood the moral implications of it as well as the the military and legal implications as well, and and uh, and political implications. So I enjoyed reading your book, Lincoln and Emancipation. What's your next book going to be on? Well, it's actually about uh, a man who was born in Maryland in 1784. At the age of five, he was taken to Spartanburg, South Carolina, where he was sold twice in his youth. In the height of the War of 1812, he liberates himself and makes his way to southeastern Indiana, where he establishes a small free Black community called Trails Grove. Four of his sons serve in the war uh, on the Union side, of course. Two of them uh, don't return home. It's an extraordinary story. This is a man who's a runaway, but he has this tremendous pride and he's suing everybody. He's not supposed to have any standing in the courts, but somehow he manages to sue people who have slighted him. Uh, Someone charges him with slander. He sues them because his name is is tarnished now. It's absolutely incredible what this man is doing in Indiana before the Civil War. And when will that be out? Uh, It's being co-authored and uh, we're trying to finish it within the next few months. So we're shopping around for a publisher. So we're not sure when it's going to be published, but we hope soon. Okay, well, thank you very much. I've been in conversation with Edna Green Medford, who is a professor of history at Howard University and the author of Lincoln and Emancipation. Thank you very much for an interesting conversation. My pleasure. On behalf of the New York Historical Society, thank you for joining us for another episode of For the Ages, a history podcast hosted by David Rubenstein. We hope you enjoyed it and come back for more. Thanks for your support. You can share your thoughts at public.programs at nyhistory.org.